So in the letter, the theology of Archbishop John Maximovich. Today we celebrated the feast of the Holy Fathers of the Ecumenical Councils, which occurs at this time every year after the 16th of July. These Fathers of the Ecumenical Councils, which, according to the service, are the seven pillars of wisdom upon which Christ our God has established the Church. It's very important for us on such a day to think about what is theology. And first of all, to be very fully aware that theology is not just some people who go to school, become very wise in reading uh, scriptures and writings of Holy Fathers, and then, either by themselves or coming together with others, they very nicely, logically think out what they think the Church believes. This is all on the level of human understanding, and theology is something higher. A very renowned theologian of our Church today, the older generation which is now passing away, and which, whose message we have to get if we are to remain orthodox, Father Michael Komazansky in Jordanville, when he was aware of all the difficulties coming upon orthodoxy now, and those people who are actually falling into wrong teachings and all these temptations that are in front of us. He said, we have uh, security in one thing, that is the divine services, because the whole of our theology is contained in the divine services, which were put together by such great fathers as St. John of Damascene and many others, already at this very time of the ecumenical councils, when our whole dogmatic uh, teaching of the Church was established quite firm <clears throat> and he writes to us that the holy serve the divine services are a security for us in case people start to get the wrong teaching and also this in particular he notes that Kantakian to these very fathers the service we had today it's also repeated in other times of the year when the holy fathers are celebrated this Kantakian is as follows the preaching of the apostles and the doctrines of the fathers sealed the one faith of the church and wearing the garment of truth woven from the theology on high she the church rightly divides and glorifies the great mystery of godliness or piety we see here theology as something which is like a garment woven from on high garment of truth woven from the theology on high. This is obviously an idea of theology quite remote from those simple courses in what's called theology. That is, theology, the, the knowledge of God, the science of God, is something which comes from on high by divine inspiration. And when the Holy Fathers come together in the Council and the Holy Spirit is with them, those things which they decry, de define and decree are not simple, simply human wisdom, but something which comes from above. We have in our times, very close to us, someone who is a theologian precisely this way, Archbishop John Maximovich, who by God's grace was given to us in these latter times, and in whom we find many, many things which help us to be and remain true Orthodox Christians, even in the very difficult times ahead. We see him as a very holy man, an ascetic, the rule of prayer and of helping others and of not resting even, 
which is extremely high and inspiring, even though we ourselves do not do that, we still we see in this a very inspiring example of how a Holy Father lives in our times. We continue to find many new treasures in him, aspects which have not been discussed too much before. And now, <clears throat> just as we come to this 10th anniversary of his death, which we celebrated just 10 years ago, just a few days, a month ago, it also happens that this is the very time when the 50th anniversary of his priesthood and his becoming a monk. So it's very appropriate that we should now examine, find another treasure in him, which is the treasury of his theological writings, which have not, up to now have been very little known. Even in Russian, we managed to gather together some of his writings, in fact, quite a few. And we see that he indeed, although he was not openly glorified for being a great theologian. He's, in fact, a much greater theologian than many people who are glorified as being theologians. But he's a theologian precisely in the sense of the theology from on high, and not just uh, school lessons, or academic, as we call it. And from this, we can find out something very important about how to be and remain <coughs> conscious, true Orthodox Christians, and to hand down the riches of our Orthodox tradition, which is uh, threatening to evaporate from the face of the earth. As for his theological background, he went, after he finished law school, when he was in Serbia, he went to the regular theological academy and he got what we would call a, a doctor's degree in theology. That is, he went through all the courses, and therefore he knows all about theological questions and problems and so forth. But, in back of that, there's something even more important for a true theologian. And by true theologian, we mean someone who truly speaks the words of God and not just repeats what he sees in books. Namely, he was from a very pious family. He was himself extremely devout in his childhood. He had experience of Holy Russia before the Revolution. He went to monasteries. He venerated miracle-working icons. He had veneration for the saints and holy men. He read lives of saints. And the whole atmosphere, which in Russia was still possible for devout people, he absorbed. And that is why later on he became such a great theologian and such a holy man. Besides this, we see one person who very much inspired him, although not in the sense that we call nowadays influence. You can't sort of trace that he influenced this or that but we see that he rather inspired him entirely to be in the church and to be a theologian. This person was Metropolitan Anthony Kropovitsky. He was the first head of the Russian church abroad, a great hierarchy in the last days of the old Russia, and a very important historical figure in the days both then and now. He was noted for his outspokenness, for being very bold and not of being too polite when it came to matters of uh, important things in the church. He was a very conscious fighter, as Metropolitan Anthony, for the best Orthodox traditions. He emphasized constantly back to the Holy Fathers, which, of course, Archbishop John uh, absorbed very thoroughly, and also talked about ortho uh, Orthodox theology as being very closely bound up to spiritual and moral life as opposed to simply learning it in school and then becoming a repeater of what you learned in school.
But the writings of Metropolitan Anthony were quite different from those of Archbishop John because Metropolitan Anthony was very much involved with the academic world. He was the, the rector or the head of several theological academies. He had to be constantly aware of the problems of his time. He had to know what the people like the Tolstoyites were thinking, who were trying to undermine faith in God and the church. And he was constantly thinking how to get across the message of orthodoxy to these people who are far away from the truth. He was constantly writing arguments back and forth about orthodox theology. And therefore, he himself was very much bound up with these problems of presenting orthodoxy to people who are far away from it. And therefore, we find his writings are actually much less inspiring than those writings of Archbishop John, which we'll now talk about. The works of Archbishop, the theological works of Archbishop John, are quite a few in number. We have not yet found them all because they're not collected together any place. They're contained in old magazines, usually church magazines, which had a very small circulation and were and now almost all been lost. For example, the old uh, church magazines of the 1920s and 30s in Yugoslavia. We found one long article just totally by chance, of course, God's grace, they found it, by chance sent us this article, which was printed in Warsaw in 1930, probably very few copies of it left, and later on in China, and in his own little periodicals in China and America and Europe. <coughs> Many of his writings are very small articles, sermons, which also are very deep, but he has several articles, longer, 20, 30, 40 pages, which are very important. He wrote about against the heresy of Bulgakov and Sophiology. He wrote about the Mother of God, which we're translating for the New Orthodox Word. And several other topics like that. And we see in him somebody quite different from Metropolitan Anthony in what comes out. That is, his theological writings. The chief characteristic, we can say, about his theological writings is freedom. He is entirely immersed in the Orthodox tradition, and he is himself a, a source of true Orthodox theology. He has no kind of foreign influences, or no kind of overemphasis of one part of tradition, because of some kind of controversy. And this makes him especially valuable as an authority on something which is very much discussed today by people in English language, the so-called Western influence on Orthodox theology in the last several hundred years. His articles, I didn't mention a few other ones, he wrote on iconography, where he emphasizes the true Orthodox iconographic style, but at the same time is not too upset about Western-style icons, as long as they're within certain limits. And he's been blessed to be in the church. He also wrote about the Holy Russia, the New Martyrs, the Church is the body of Christ, the meaning of the Russian diaspora, that is, the Russians in exile, the Orthodox monarchy. He talked also about uh, one question, for what did Christ pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? And here we see how he was very expert in handling a subject that at that time was quite <coughs> controversial, because his teacher, Metropolitan Anthony, had in opposing what he called a scholastic interpretation of the payment made to, ang to an angry God, went himself a little too far in the opposite direction, and therefore he, he had an overemphasis upon 
the, the meaning of the prayer of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. As, this, as though this were the most important part of our redemption and the cross somehow is underemphasized. This often happens when one is involved in polemics, that is, with arguments with other theologians. Some go to overboard on one side a little bit too much, and in counteracting that, sometimes one goes a little too far on the other side. And Archbishop John had a very nice balance in this, which shows how sound his outlook was and how he did not go to any kind of extremes. Because he took the best part of Metropolitan Anthony's teaching on this subject, about the compassionate love of Jesus Christ for all of mankind. At the same time, he corrected some of the mistakes which Metropolitan Anthony, by mistake, had put, in, put into this article. For example, and he said that it was unworthy of us to think that Jesus Christ should be afraid of his uh, coming sufferings, whereas, as a matter of fact, most of the Holy Fathers talk about precisely this point, that Jesus Christ, this proves the, the human nature of Jesus Christ, that he was afraid of the coming sufferings. So Archbishop John corrected this and gave the best part of Metropolitan Anthony's teaching also on compassionate love. And he made out of this something which was, people were talking back and forth, some defending one point of view, some the other, and Archbishop John, without making any controversy out of it at all. In fact, from reading this article, you could never guess that there was any kind of controversy. It shows how very well balanced he was. Likewise, there was this question of Western influence, which also Metropolitan Anthem talked about a great deal, because it happened in several, for several hundred years. The, uh, in the Orthodox Church, there were borrowings from the West, Roman Catholics, in theological writings. And it's very important for us to understand exactly what this means. Some people talk a little too much about Western influence, and they go overboard and want to throw out everything for several hundred years. Of course, this is wrong. And we notice that Archbishop John, just as he was very balanced about Metropolitan Anthony, when some people were protesting against Metropolitan Anthony's teaching, he was very balanced. In fact, we even asked him ourselves once about this question, and he had a way of saying, of moving his hand and saying, it's unimportant. That is, the teaching has very important parts, and if there are mistakes in it, that's secondary, that's unimportant. The same way with regard to someone else who is also a great figure in Orthodox theology, <coughs> Metropolitan Peter Megilla, who lived in the 17th century, the same time as St. Joseph Pachayev in the west of Russia. He's been accused of being a, under great Western influence, and some people even want to completely throw him out because he's not Orthodox, but uh, Archbishop John had very great reverence for him. And we can see in his attitude towards him something about the this whole question of Western influence, which is very important for us to see. It happened that this question of Western influence entered into the Church after the Council of Florence, 1439. That is the time when, for political reasons, the Byzantine theologians went to the West and they capitulated. That is, they gave in to the teaching of the Roman Catholics and accepted certain things which were not Orthodox. And they all signed, except for the great champion of orthodoxy, St. Mark of Ephesus. And after this, there was a great, difficult time in the Church. We now studying from the 500 years later. We can see that, of course, this false union was rejected, and the Orthodox Church did not accept it. But at that time, and for quite a while afterwards, over a hundred years, this question of this union of Florence was very 
a difficult question in the church. In Russia, as soon as this metropolitan Isidor came back and said, I signed the union, they kicked him out. He came to church and the, the czar himself was there and he said, you did what? You signed the union with Rome? And they refused to have anything. They put him in prison and refused the union, absolutely. And he had to go back to the West. He no, became... He, he was in prison. Uh, he escaped through Poland and the West and uh, finally became a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, an apostate from Orthodoxy. In the West, I mean, in Greece, um, uh, St. Mark of Ephesus rejected the Union, and when he came back, he gathered around him people who were against the Union. And after only 15 years later, by God's judgment, very likely for this very reason that they accepted the Union, Constantinople fell. Then there was again a patriarch, Gennadius, who was a disciple of St. Mark of Ephesus, and he rejected the Union. But there was a great deal of confusion in the Greek Church for some time after that. In fact, is there a book, a whole book on the subject by Timothy Ware, Father Callistos, called Eustatius Argenti, talking about the attitude of the Greeks towards Rome in these very centuries after 1450. And we see that there is a great deal of confusion in Greece as to whether they were the Catholics were part of the church or not part of the church or what was all going on. Many times the, the Orthodox bishops would call in Franciscans and Jesuits to teach in their churches and they even had services in the same churches, although they did have an altar in a separate place. It's in Greece throughout Greece, many places in Greece, because evidently there was no sort of, they didn't quite know whether they had accepted the Union or hadn't accepted the Union. There are many who were perfectly <coughs> against it, but others said, well, we signed the papers, everybody signed, the patriarch signed, the emperor signed, we're not be obliged. And in Russia this problem did not exist. And therefore, in Greece the problem was for a while much worse than in Russia. But the same kind of thing happened in Russia also, the western, uh, in the western part of Russia, there was the same problem as the Latin missionaries came in and tried to actually seduce the people to become Roman Catholics. And this is where this problem of the Western influence starts. This had already been going on for a hundred years or more. In the end of the 16th century, the Latins made another union, that is in Russia, in the western part of Russia, this Brest-Litovsk Union, which St. Jovopachayev was fighting. And it was obvious that they were proceeding to take over the whole East. And they were making at the same time, they were using all these, <coughs> in the confusion of the people in Greece, as to whether they were in union or not. They were using this as a, as a chance to put their own missionaries, to settle their own bishops in the Greek cities, and to actually take over the whole East, beginning with Greece and going to Russia. And this time was a very critical time for Orthodoxy, because the Great Fathers knew that the Catholics had gone off on doctrine, they had fallen away from the Church. And yet there was this propaganda to be part of the Latin Church, <coughs> though the Pope was still the chief among the bishops. And at the same time in the West there was what we call today the Renaissance, this whole movement of learning, which of course to a large extent was a revival of ancient ideas, pagan ideas. but one can see that it was also a general, <coughs> the whole meaning of, Ren of Renaissance probably can be summed up as a continuation of the scholastic movement earlier in the West, namely an increase of worldly wisdom. That is, that, that thing which for the salvation of the soul is not necessary. Learning about nature, and this is when science uh, became very important and began to have the importance it has today, when 
languages were studied, translations were made, ancient Greek and Latin classics were handed down, sort of revived from the uh, oblivion because they were very little studied in the, in the earlier centuries after the fall of Greece and Rome. And in general, the level of learning increased, that is, people became more aware of world history, <coughs> of science, and of in general worldly wisdom. In itself, this is of no importance, this worldly wisdom. But once one enters into this, one gets a certain kind of attitude of mind, which is not in itself uh, hostile to salvation, but one has to understand it properly in order to find out how one can save one's soul if one has it. And as a matter of fact, in the 20th century, this movement of Western learning has now invaded the entire world. And everybody who comes to orthodoxy today, with the possible exception of some tribes of Africans, in Uganda and Kenya and so forth, is involved with this very question of knowing how you can save your soul once you've become worldly wise, become sophisticated, knowing about world history, knowing science, and all this worldly wisdom. And at this time, in Russia, and in Greece both, the level of orthodox education was in a very simple level. And there were people like, precisely like the Metropolitan Peter Megilla, who saw that with this wisdom, so-called wisdom, that is this knowledge <coughs> coming in from the West, <coughs> let's say college-level education coming in from the West, that there's a very great danger ahead for orthodoxy because the ordinary orthodox people were very simple. And St. Peter tells us in his epistle that we must have be ready to have an answer to those who ask us about the faith. And it so happened that a simple person who believes orthodoxy the way it's been handed down to him is not too able to have an answer when you have a very sly and sophisticated person coming to you, not necessarily with bad intentions either, but he comes and begins asking all kinds of questions about the faith. We even had an example in our little talk yesterday. We read in the lives of saints that a dragon came and began tempting the saint, like St. Marina yesterday and St. John the Much Suffering. What are we to think of this? You read this text to somebody who lives here in Platina or San Francisco or anybody in the modern world who is not totally raised in the spirit of orthodox piety and they all seem to laugh at you. And you try to give an explanation. Well, there really were dragons. I said, oh, don't fool us. You're making up things. So this, is, this is superstition. You mean you really still believe that? And what do you answer to them? Or any children going to school. If the children read at home a life of saint and he goes to school, the, the people will laugh him to, to death. You mean you read these silly stories, I say? The dragons appearing with big smoke? And, and St. Marina is actually, her hair is singed. And uh, St. Swallowed. And St. John, the much suffering, you say his beard was singed by the dragon, the fire coming out of his mouth? Well, how do you understand that? And St. Marina was in prison. How did the dragon get by the guard? How did he get into the locked door? What's going on? Is there such a thing as a dragon in the first place? And if you're very simple in your faith, you say, well, I believe it because that's what the Holy Father has handed down to me. And they'll say, oh, yes, but the Holy Fathers, you have to correct them and gather them together and throw out things like that. And in fact, you look at the Roman Catholic Church today and they do exactly that. They think that St. Nicholas doesn't even exist or St. George doesn't exist. They throw them out because they say this is superstition. And therefore, with this Western learning coming, there is a danger that orthodoxy can be so simple and primitive that it will not know how to answer and therefore, it will be only a small island of people who simply say, I believe, because that's the way it has been handed down. And people who had this education will not be able to believe. 
And therefore, we see that there is a need to understand what people this Western learning is all about, so you can answer them on their own arguments and tell them exactly what's going on. And as a matter of fact, we do have arguments, those who have read the lives of the fathers and believe them because the Holy Fathers handed them down, at the same time are gone through college and know and understand what goes on in the Western mind, because actually everybody today who's Orthodox has a Western mind. It's obvious there's nobody left, except maybe a few simple villagers someplace, that, is, that has this simple mentality. Most Orthodox people today, whether in Greece, whether in the Soviet Union, whether in all those countries behind the Iron Curtain or in the Near East, they all now are infected by this Western learning, and therefore we must have an answer on this level. And this is precisely what happened in Russia. There were very far-sighted people like Metropolitan Peter Mergila who saw that we cannot answer them unless we first learn what they know. And that is why when he saw that he became Metropolitan of Kiev and he saw in Kiev there was very simple schools, the Slavonic Greek schools, which were teaching simply the tradition as it's been handed down, without being able to answer these questions of these people who are learned in the Western sciences. And therefore he said, we must have a Latin school. And people, some people got horrified and said, this is foreign, this is uh, outside of our tradition. And his answer was, no, we must learn what they know so we can answer them. And therefore he deliberately installed a Latin school. In the first century or more, the theological learning in, in Russia was compiled very largely in Latin language even, because all these books were in Latin. And, of course, there are dangers here. You have to be able to distinguish what is real, real uh, orthodoxy and where the Latins have stuck in their own teaching. At that time, it's not quite as bad as it is today, because today the Latins have gone completely off. Then they still preserved quite a bit of what was from before the schism. And therefore, the person who has prudence and discernment can read these texts and find out where they are right, where they are wrong, and use them properly. There were some respects in which Metropolitan Peter used phrases which came straight from the Latins, which were not in the earlier fathers. And in a case like that, one doesn't have to get too upset. It so happens that the Orthodox tradition itself is the tradition of truth, and therefore this tradition itself corrects whenever any kind of statement becomes a little too much, a little bit off, the tradition itself corrects this. And so it happens that, for example, the Catechism of Metropolitan Peter, Magilla, was later corrected by a Greek theologian. Later on, it was even more corrected in Russia by Metropolitan Platon, and finally by Metropolitan Philaret of Moscow, the great hierarch, who was actually the leading one who who abolished actually the study of, I mean, the teaching of theology in Latin. That was already at the beginning of the 19th century, already two centuries later. And at that time, already, this Western learning had been assimilated. And therefore, it was no longer necessary to be having everything in Latin. You had your own Russian books. And the level of education had raised very much. And people going to the Orthodox seminaries and theological academies knew just as much about all this Western learning as people in the West. And therefore, it was time when we could stop learning things in Latin and begin to learn them in Russian. So that was his great function, was to say, this time has passed when we have to depend so much upon this, West, this uh, Western learning in their language. Let us now have it all in our language and make sure we purify it of anything which was not quite right. And so <coughs> the, all this learning was gradually the, the, the words which in themselves not particularly bad, but which were not precise according to the patristic vocabulary were then thrown out. And today we have a state that orthodoxy, having gone through this Western learning, is able to answer 
people from the West on their own grounds. That is, we're just as sophisticated as they are, we're just as aware of all kinds of modern science and modern learning. We will not be in the position of the simple villager who simply doesn't know what to say when you start criticizing dragons. On the contrary, now a person will read stories about dragons and he'll be very quick to find out what is the patristic teaching, how it is that the uh, devil who is immaterial can singe the beard, because we know, according to St. Macarius, the great and other fathers, that the devil is not entirely immaterial, only God is immaterial. And uh, the devils and angels have some kind of actual body, although it's very much more refined than our body. And that, of course, the case of these dragons that refer to St. Marina and St. John the Much Suffering were not some kind of beast, they were demons who can take forms in order to frighten ascetics. We know that for various reasons, especially because when the saint made the sign of the cross or prayed, the dragon disappeared. It's obvious that's a, an apparition of the demons. Other cases, such as the dragon of St. George, it looks like it was a real dragon, some kind of real beast, which um, such a beast have existed. In fact, there are records of them. And even recently, uh, 30 years ago in Monterey, one was dragged up on the beach, some kind of a, what we call a sea monster very unusual beast which has not been verified up to this day. So one thing when they're actual beasts that don't disappear when you make the sign of the cross and you actually drag their body through the streets like St. George did. This woman. And of course there are many other respects in which we must know how to interpret what has been handed down by the Holy Fathers. And by knowing what is thought by uh, the sophisticated people. Other cases such as the dragon of St. George, it looks like it was a real dragon, some kind of real beast, which such a beast have existed. In fact, there are records of them. And even recently, uh, 30 years ago in Monterey, one was dragged up on the beach, some kind of a, what we call a sea monster. A very unusual beast, which has not been verified up to this day. But that's one thing when they're actual beasts that don't disappear when you make the sign of the cross and you actually drag their body through the streets like St. George did, this woman. And of course, there are many other respects in which we must know how to interpret what has been handed down by the Holy Fathers. And by knowing what is thought by uh, the sophisticated people in the West, we can do this. So this is the actual position of someone like Metropolitan Peter Magilla, who, in spite of some expressions which later on were corrected and not accepted, is on the whole a very great father who handed down to us orthodoxy and who helped orthodoxy to defend itself against these heretics actually who tried to take away our orthodoxy from us and make us entirely in the influence of the Latin West and the worldly wisdom. So actually it's owing to someone like Peter Magilla that we are today able to fight against these Westerners on their own grounds. We likewise see this the question of so-called Western influence in a number of books which were adapted by Western, by Eastern fathers, Greek and Russian, from Western sources. For example, uh, already 200 years after, uh, 150 years after Peter Magilla, we have in Greece the great father, Saint Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, who took several books straight from the West, especially one called Unseen Warfare. Some people even still criticize it and say, why do we have to take books from the West when they have our books from the East? But we have to understand, what was the meaning of this? It's a little bit different from the question of Peter McGillard because he was taking something directly for spiritual purposes. And it's obvious that the reason for this is that St. Nicodemus was mostly concerned 
how to present the orthodox tradition, orthodox spirituality, to the people who had already gone away from the ancient tradition of piety. They were already losing that savor of orthodoxy. And you cannot simply give to a person who is not too aware of orthodox spiritual language, spiritual life, you cannot give the ladder of St. John, because he will read it, and we know people who will pick it up, read it, and say, oh, that's for monks, that's too advanced, I can't understand that. Therefore, there must needs be for them something more ABC, more on their level. They've already been corrupted by Western learning. Therefore, you have to give them something a little more uh, primitive. And therefore, he took from the West precisely such a book as Unseen Warfare, which on the whole was not a bad book. And he corrected it further, throwing out anything that was Latin and introducing things which were orthodox. Later on, Bishop Theophan the Reckless in Russia did even more to present this book as an excellent book of spiritual guidance, especially on the more primitive level. This kind of book did not appear in ancient times because the people of ancient times were not corrupted like they are today. And this book, like Unseen Warfare, is a book for us today who are corrupted and we have to get back to our sources. And this book helps us precisely to get back to our sources. So this helps to put a more uh, balanced picture into this whole question of Western influences. The same thing we can see, you know, most likely, although the subject hasn't been investigated too much, we know that St. Macarius of Corinth, a friend of St. Nicodemus, wrote a book on frequent communion, on continual communion of the Holy Mysteries, because at that time, both in Greece and Russia, the custom had been introduced through carelessness and spiritual life of receiving communion very infrequently, that is, once a year, some kind of minimum like that. Of course, this is not very good. This is a sort of very minimum of spiritual life. And we know that all our Holy Fathers at all times have encouraged the reception of more frequent Holy Communion. It doesn't necessarily mean all the time, every day, or something like that, but uh, more frequently than once a year. In fact, although uh, it depends upon each spiritual father how often one is blessed to receive Holy Communion, it's certainly true that any priest nowadays who is concerned about encouraging spiritual life we encourage people to receive communion and all the great feasts several times during the fast and quite frequently. And it so happens that this whole idea of frequent communion arose in the West. And there was a book in 1640 or so written by a person called Arnaud in France called On Frequent Communion, which he sends forth, he sets forth the writings of Holy Fathers on this subject, and on the whole it's not a bad book. Maybe some things there are too Catholic. There's a copy here in San Francisco in the USF library. Maybe there are some things there which are purely Catholic spirituality, but there are quite a few chapters which are purely quotes from Holy Fathers about receiving Holy Communion. Another one in Spain, there was someone called Miguel de Molinos who wrote about Frequent Communion about the same time. And it's very likely, although we can't prove it right now, that St. Macarius read these books, one of them, and very likely he even translated whole chapters from this book of his. But for that reason, we do not need to get upset that we're taking a Western spiritual practice if we realize that they were adopting from the West something which can be important for us in our corrupted state. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with it at all. In fact, this is what we call a true theological wisdom. One is not afraid of something foreign just because it's foreign. But one can take that having a higher wisdom which the Church gives and adapt for one's own whatever is useful and throw out what is not useful. And this kind of theological wisdom is precisely what we find in Archbishop John.
Archbishop John did not have any kind of uh, great prejudice against Western sources. <coughs> he was in the full tradition of orthodoxy and in the full tradition of those who are adapting from wherever they can find sources for spiritual profit. And therefore he equally venerated the Metropolitan Peter Megilla and Metropolitan Anthony Kapowitzki. And if they seem to be contradictory on some points, higher theological wisdom can find out where they're actually in a deeper agreement and does not need to be upset by these lesser differences about whether one is pro-West or anti-West. In the end, one is, in some respects, pro-West. In fact, Archbishop John, in his article on iconography, says in those centuries when the Western influence was coming to the, to the East, there are many respects in which it was bad, but many respects in which it was a good thing. That is, of course, this idea of learning to be able to know what is going on in the West in order to combat them on their own level and even adapting some spiritual books for the use of Orthodox. And of course today we are in a situation where everybody who is Orthodox is totally immersed in this Western world, this Western understanding, and therefore we better know how to take wisdom from it, what to accept and what to reject. Archbishop John, when he made this, this gesture with his hands that unimportant, that is, you talk about Metropolitan Magillus, used the word, for example, transubstantiation. Well, it so happens that that word is bound up with Thomas Aquinas' theology about substance and accidents and so forth, and we don't accept that teaching. It's too, it's too philosophical for us, and therefore we don't need to use that word. We can, if he used the word, fine. We don't have to accept the whole philosophy of Thomas Aquinas in order to use that word. It's better to use other words, maybe transformation or transelementation and so forth. But we don't have to get upset by the use of that word. And at the same time, we use whatever we can from these sources which promotes piety and do not get upset about it. The important thing in these writings we have of Archbishop John is to stand above this level of fighting in theology. In fact, you take up any writing of Archbishop John, whether a sermon or a long article, and you see there's absolutely no controversy. Even when he has to fight someone like Bulgakov, he has to show where his texts are off, where his teaching is, is wrong, it's not orthodox. But even there, you don't get the impression that he's fighting like our academic theologians. On the contrary, he's very calm. There's a certain teaching of the fathers, he pre presents it, and where Bulgakov goes off, he shows this is not right, this is here he quoted wrong. In fact, he takes, in some cases, it's very impressive because Bulgakov was noted for being the most uh, patristic of all these actual heretics of the Paris school. There's one who is constantly quoting fathers, and therefore they constantly quote fathers. Most people don't know the fathers too well, and therefore they're very impressed when you see that when, for example, he quotes a doctrine on the Mother of God, it says, not quite what the Latins say, that there is an immaculate conception, but he says that the Mother of God is without sin. And according to Orthodox tradition, we do not say the Mother of God is without sin. We say that she did not fall into sin, but that she had both the original sin, ancestral sin, and also she had sinfulness in her mind. And there's no doubt she's subject to the same sins in general that all flesh is subject to, except for our Lord Jesus Christ, but that she did not fall into sin. And Bogdava did not understand such a distinction, and talked about the sinlessness of the Mother of God, and he quoted 50 texts from the Divine Services and from the writings of Holy Fathers about this question of sinlessness, the Mother of God. 
And therefore, Archbishop John, being a very competent theologian, he examined all these 50 texts, and he showed that not a single one of them says what he says it says. Either he's taking it out of context, and the rest of the passage from the Holy Father says exactly the opposite, or else he is making it say more than it's supposed to say and in general simply he does not understand how to read holy fathers and he's making he's trying to force them to say what he wants them to say and archbishop john had to show that this is in every case this is not true that these holy fathers did not say what Vodakos thinks they're saying we see in this uh, this theological works of archbishop john uh, a great freedom also being above this sort of petty fighting where some, some people who go to academic schools, they're very fond of uh, proving that this person is way off and triumphing. That's sort of a, well, it's like an undergraduate uh, fighting. And he was above that, showing very calmly and clearly what is the true teaching of church. Because he was above all these getting excited about small points. And that is where his, this freedom of his theological spirit is very important for us. And we see a very interesting example in which we found out from a priest from San Francisco. This shows something about how his, how he was so free in his theological spirit, how he was above small details. Even when it comes to small details, which in themselves are very good, still he was above them. There was a case in Shanghai where uh, the catechism class had finished, that is, the, the Russian school was finished for the year, and they had, as custom in, in Russian schools, oral examinations which students have to reply, not just writing down the answers to questions, they have to stand up and give uh, an oral reply, which shows to the teacher how well they're able to express themselves, how polite they are, how proper, and so forth. And also the person who comes in, the examiner, is usually the head of the school, in this case Archbishop John, will see how well this teacher has been teaching the students. And one girl got up and was reciting a part about Old Testament from the Catechism, there is a part where it says, recite the major prophets and the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And we know, of course, that for practical purposes, uh, in these modern catechisms, the prophets are divided up into those who wrote long books, and there are important prophecies in them, and those who wrote very small books, in which the prophecies aren't quite so striking. It's an obvious distinction. It's very helpful to learn that there are 12 minor prophets, and so forth, and it helps you learn them. You can memorize the names better, and it's a help to learning. Although this thing with God, obviously, this is not so important. But when this girl began reciting the names of the twelve minor prophets, quite properly, just as she learned it, she memorized it, and all of a sudden, Bishop John says, there's no such thing as a minor prophet. And of course, the poor girl was excited, and the teacher was insulted, because he taught them all about the minor prophets and the major prophets. And why did Archbishop John say such a thing? Sort of deny what they've been learning. And we see it's because he was thinking, first of all, about how it is with God. Of course, with God, of course, there are no minor prophets. Anyone who's a prophet sees the future. He's obviously a divine person. He's a saint. And therefore, it's, it's true that there are some who prophesied less and some who prophesied more. But with God, they're all great. They're all major. And this point showed that Father John was above this sort of putting into categories. Although, of course, he accepted the fact that you learn who are minor and who are major. He calmed them down after he explained. He calmed the girl down because he began to cry. But this very same thing shows again his balance, his uh, sobriety, and his freedom, and the fact that for him theology was first of all what we read in this Kantakian, 
something woven, that is the teaching of the church, is something woven from the theology on high. It comes from God. There's a different flavor to it. It's not simply what you read in books. What you read in books helps you. It's good to learn it. But you must remember that above that is the theology which comes from on high, which comes from God. And this is what makes him so inspiring for us today. And uh, actually an example for us not to get involved with small points, with small controversies, but to remember that theology is something which comes from above, from God. And he himself, being present every day at the daily, at the divine services, used above all this source to be giving theology. And probably more than any other theologian of our modern times, he quotes the services of the church. Because for him, theology was not a matter just of sitting down and writing out, reading books and writing out things. It was a matter, first of all, of absorbing the teaching of the church in the services. And that is why it's precisely this attitude of of controversy, of polemics, we call it, this is absent in his works. Even when he's proving what's right and what's wrong, 